Well, we'll start off this morning with a uh, quick survey. Barna Group did this in 2020. Two questions. They're before true or false questions. They're not trick questions. Uh, you can you don't need to share your answers, so no worries. First question: True or false? God is the all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect, and just Creator of the universe who still rules the world today. Just in your minds. First question. Second question: Satan is not merely a symbol of evil but a real spiritual being and influences human lives. Again, true or false. Now, while you're getting your answers, also be thinking, I think this survey was done in America, sort of a cross-section of people. What do you think people said? What percentages did people answer yes, true, to both questions? Just ponder that while you're doing that. Let me introduce myself. Uh, I'm Jeff Bennett. Privileged to be the lead pastor here at Harbor and to our Harbor Online community. Welcome to you this morning. So glad you are a part of all that God is doing here at Harbor. And then one other thing, I don't normally do this, but because Liam Wilson is on our pastoral staff, I think this is very appropriate. Liam's in the back there. She said yes. <laughs> So, Ulyssa and Liam, we love you. Congratulations on your engagement. We praise God with you. Thank you, guys. Uh, so, back to our survey. What, what did you answer, but what percentage of people said yes? To the first question, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, just creator, rules the world. 51% of people agreed with that statement. Now, second question, Satan is he not merely a symbol of evil, but is a real spiritual being and influences human lives today? The survey said 56% of people agreed with that question. So if you read the headline, which can be a little inaccurate, but it certainly gets you to read the article, the headline was, more people believe in Satan than they believe in God, which is a good headline. And 56 to 51, somewhat true. And so, if you this morning said true to that second question, Satan is real and he influences human lives, just think about that for a moment, what you said. What, what, what do we actually do with that? What do we actually mean by that? That Satan is real, that him and his fallen angels, as we would call demons, are real and influence and impact our lives lives. How do we process that? How do we come to understand that? It's one thing in theory to say, yes, it's true, but what does it mean in everyday life? I have sort of what I have branded around Harbor, what I call the weird call of the week. It's never an internal call, so don't worry, you're not in that category, but it always comes, it, the weird call of the week comes from outside, from someone I've never met and never known, and they don't know us and we don't know them, but the call comes in. Today, it's probably more of the weird email of the week, but nonetheless, it's in this category. The reason I've branded it that way is it helps me be ready for it. I know about every week I'm going to have some sort of weird email or weird call. I put it in a category and I'm like, oh, this is my opportunity now to respond with grace and to be thoughtful, but just realize this is a regular part of what I do. Probably more than five times, but not less than 10 times, 
I have received a call from someone, and I wish Mark had got the call, but somehow they got to me. And here's the summary of the call. And this is just, you know, 30-minute conversation boiled down in all of those conversations down to my 10-second summary for you. Here's, here's the summary. I have a friend or family member who's possessed by a demon. Do you do exorcisms at your church? Now, that's the summary of the call. It was much longer. We talked. I listened well. But that was about the summary of the call. And let me say this. In every single one of those situations, I have struggled to give a great answer. I sort of struggled that through. You know, how do I respond to this? How do I walk with this person well? How do I engage with them? And I hope I'm not alone. If you got that call this week, I'm hoping you may struggle with knowing how to answer that. And then several years ago, I was in another country outside North America. I was driving with a group of pastors. They spoke a different language. They got a call on the phone. They talked about it. And then the driver said to me, he said, oh, Jeff, we're just going to swing by a house and cast a demon out of this pastor's daughter on our way to our next stop. And he sort of said it like you would say to me, Jeff, I'm just going to swing by Tim Hortons and pick up a coffee except it was, we're going to do this. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I went along. I was there. I was invited and spent next 45 minutes probably in a very unique pastoral experience in my life in that moment. Now, as I've thought about that, I've thought, if they asked me to lead during that time, what would I do? What would I say? Again, we've, for those of you that affirmed the truth, uh, tr Satan is real and he influences human lives. Here's the moment. What would I actually do and say? And again, I have struggled with that. And so part of my process to get to today's message was to try to answer this question for myself. What does this actually mean? That Satan influences human lives, the real presence of spirit, the, the spiritual forces of evil in our world. What does that actually mean? And so that's been my journey to try to preach this message to myself. And no matter where you're at in this journey, for some of you this morning, you maybe have had incidences. And I heard some good stories at the door after the first service where people shared some of their stories with me along these same lines, and you may have struggled to know how to answer as well. This is for you. Others of you are like, wow, this is going to be very interesting today. I'm going to listen. You're curious to see what I have to say. And others of you, especially if this is your first Sunday, you might think, oh, this is just really turned weird all of a sudden. And uh, let me assure you, or let me say this, first time I've ever preached on this message, don't know if I'll ever preach on this message again. But it's where the text leads us today, and I think no matter how you feel about this issue or how it's making you feel right now, as we come to the end, there's such a valuable spiritual lesson for all of us as we think about following Christ and what that means. So hang on to the end because there's a great principle at the end that just pulls this all together as we seek to truly follow Jesus. So sure hope you've got your Bibles this morning because we're going to go through a bunch of scripture. It's Luke chapter 4. Open your Bibles up. Turn them on. We're going to go down to verse 31. Let me just review where we're at. We're in a series called He is Here. Luke is writing of the biography of Jesus. He's introducing us to Jesus. He's given us his credentials. And now what we're seeing is this man named Jesus. There's this growing excitement and interest about him. The one who resisted and overcame the temptation of the devil is now beginning to move out and be amongst the people. 
He's proclaiming his message. And that's what we saw last week. Luke wanted to be clear to communicate to us what Jesus was about. And so he gives us a sample sermon. And he says, Jesus was first a preacher more than anything else. And he proclaimed a message that God came to save sinners. That's what Luke wanted to make clear. And that, was, that is the major emphasis of last week and also of this week. The same major point. And you can sort of understand where Luke's coming from. He's introducing Jesus and he wants to say, this was Jesus' primary mission. To proclaim the gospel. God saves sinners. And he wants to make that clear. So last week he gave us a sample sermon. This week he's going to give us what it actually played out in real life. And so in some ways, I could, I could have done this morning the same message as I did last week because the major point is exactly the same. One is a sample sermon, and this is a sample of Jesus' message and ministry and how it worked out together. But the reason I've chosen not to do the same message is because you heard it last week. Number two is Luke early on is doing the same thing repeatedly in the book, he's trying to establish this base for us in what Jesus came to do and what is the gospel. Later on, as we get down into Luke, you'll look at some of the things Jesus says, a whole chapter, and you'll be like, does Jesus actually know about the gospel? Does he know God saves sinners? Because he sounds like he's just a moral teacher. Well, the reason he sounds like that is, is because Luke has established the base, and now we're building on that. So early on, we get a lot of the base being established, and later on, then we get teaching about discipleship. But rather than do the same message over, I decided we would do the minor emphasis of the passage, which is about spiritual forces of evil. And as we go through the story, you'll see it's very prominent here. It's very prominent, easy to see. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to work through the story so you see it all in context. Then we'll talk about the minor emphasis how do we deal with evil in our world that Satan influences human lives? What does that actually mean? And then we'll end with, go back to what the major emphasis is right at the end. So my hope and prayer today is this, is that we would all be more aware of the presence of evil in our world. If you looked at that second question and said Satan is real and he's influencing lives, that we would be more aware of actually what that means and how to combat that, but then also we will see the broader picture of how we walk with Jesus and how we minister to others. So Luke chapter 4, verse 31. Let me show you on the screen the outline for this passage. Your titles really don't do it justice. Here's what Luke is trying to do. Again, it's a sample. So he says, Jesus, point number eight, what Jesus is about is teaching. He's going to give us one example. Then we're going to see an exorcism. He gives us one example, one person. Then he gives us a healing, one person. Then we reverse the flow, but now it gets broader. Now he's healing many people. Then he's doing exorcisms with many. And lastly, Luke ends with preaching or teaching. Point A is the main point. That's why Luke starts and finishes with it. And the other two things, the miracles... Just go to corroborate, as we will see, what Jesus is doing in his preaching and teaching. So I love that slide. I think it's a really helpful outline just in understanding Luke chapter 4. So in your Bibles, follow along. We're going to go through this and look at each verse. Here's what Luke records. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. 
They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Same thing as last week. What's Jesus doing? He's going to the synagogues and he is teaching. Luke wants to be clear. This is what Jesus was about. But not like all the other rabbis. The other rabbis just quoted other rabbis. That's all they did. Quote and footnote and end note. But Jesus taught with authority. He said, this is what God says. And it was unique teaching. And it stirred people's hearts. Of course, he was God himself. He spoke with the very authority of God. Next verse in 32. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So here's what we see here. An outside evil force is exercising authority over this man. And what causes this violent conflict to occur? It's the preaching of the word. Jesus is authoritatively declaring the word of God. And now suddenly there's a conflict with this evil force. They hate it. They fear it. And they lash out against it. And so we have here the battle between the one who has an unclean spirit and the one who is full of the Holy Spirit. Just as an aside here, this evil spirit knows exactly who Jesus is. And James tells us this, even the devil, even the demons know who Jesus is and believe in him in the sense of acknowledge who he is. And so we always remind ourselves, it's not enough just to believe that Jesus existed. Even this evil spirit does that. There's a difference between believing just in acknowledging and actually trusting in, putting our faith in. Well, what's Jesus going to do? This is quite a moment there in the synagogue. Next verse, here's what he says. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And then the demon threw the man down before them, before them all and came out without injuring him. Jesus is not like other exorcists of his day. There's no ritual, there's no incantations, there's no formulas. It's just the power of his word. Be quiet and come out. And then verse 36, all the people were amazed. Luke didn't need to record that. We would have known that. We would have felt the same way. But look what they say. Look what they say. And they said to each other, what words these are. With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding region. You see where Luke's taking us back? They're saying, what words of these? The, the, the miracle that Jesus does corroborates the power and authority of his teaching. That's what Jesus, that's what Luke wants us to see in Jesus. This power and authority he has in his word. Next verse, Jesus left the synagogue. I think he probably would have stayed after. This was the day you, you didn't want to miss church. I'm sure everyone stayed after and talked about, about just what had happened. Right? And then he goes to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up all at once and began to wait on them. So now we're introduced to this man named Simon. We haven't heard his name yet. We've read ahead. We know it's Simon Peter, one of the disciples. But up until this point, Jesus is just doing ministry all on his own. It's just Jesus and the crowds. 
But Simon is married. It's his home. His mother-in-law is there. She's sick with a fever, and Jesus heals her instantly. We know that because she gets up and begins to serve him. It's a sign that she's totally better, and it's probably a sign of her immense gratitude for what he had just done for her. So we've worked our way down the outline. Jesus is preaching in one synagogue, one exorcism, one healing. Now we start to reverse, and it gets broader. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each of them, he healed them. They brought all. Now here's what's happening, right? You can't work on the Sabbath. And so the people wait till the sun goes down. They know where Jesus is at. And then they get all the sick of the village and maybe surrounding villages and they bring them all to Peter's home, all outside there, maybe some inside. It's dark now, there's torches lit and Jesus comes out and look what Jesus does. What does he do? Laying his hands, I love this, on each one. It's like he just didn't come to the door and say, hey, you're all healed, see you tomorrow. It's like he spent individual time going around to each one, listening to their story talking to them, engaging with them, and healing them. And, and let me just pause here. This is not relevant to anything else we're talking about, but for you this morning, this might be exactly why God brought you to church. For those of you who are just so weary, so worn out, where life has just been so hard, where there's all sorts of cares and stresses or whatever else you're going through, and you can sort of think, where is God? Where is he? I just want to remind you of this picture. He knows. He cares. It's just this individual picture of Jesus going to each person, loving and caring them. And if I could do one thing today to comfort you, if you're in that place in life, would you just remember that about our God? He knows. He sees. And would you come to him? Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. All right. On to verse 41. Moreover, again, we're working back up the other side. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because he knew, because they knew he was the Messiah. They know exactly who Jesus was. Now you think, why did he shut them up? Right? In fact, the demons know better than the people know who he is. But he didn't, how do I want to say, no matter what's going on here, Jesus does not, even though they knew the truth, they happened to know it was right, Jesus does not want them to be the ones saying it. You'll see this quote on the screen from David Gooding, who helps us understand this. Satan and his demons may, for tactical reasons, say what is true. In the third temptation, Satan even quoted scripture. Or they may be forced against their will to say what is true. But they never say the truth out of loyalty to the truth or with any intention of leading people to believe the truth. And that's why Jesus doesn't want them talking. He keeps them quiet. Then we carry on verse 42. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. This is what's just happened is probably... Most scholars say this is the busiest recorded ministry day in Jesus' life. He's taught at the synagogue. He's cast out this evil spirit out of the man. He's gone to the home. He's healed Peter's mother-in-law. And then late into the evening, right, this would have taken some time, he's healed all these people. The busiest recorded day. And then look what Jesus is doing. Before the sun comes up, what's he doing? Going to find a solitary place. I've got to get alone, and I've got to pray. 
I need strength for the next day. And he's saying, I need to make sure I'm focused on God, on what you have for me for this next day. This is Jesus in his human form. Good reminder for all of us here as another aside. If any of us think that we can live the Christian life in our own strength and we're good for any day. Boy, look at Jesus here. He knows in his humanness he's got to get up and seek God and find strength and find focus. And how much more should this motivate us to say, oh God, let me each day rely on you and seek you. Now, you'll also notice in verse 2, the people are up early. They're like, oh, wow, yesterday was great. I bet today's even going to get better. And then Jesus is not at Peter's house. So they go out looking for him and came to where he was. They tried to keep him from leaving him. We would do the same thing. Jesus, don't leave, right? We got more sickness. And if they had to find out he could multiply fish and loaves, they would have been like, Jesus, we're building you a house. Just stay right here. Life is going to be great. But verse 43, Luke again He's working his way through the outline. He's giving us Jesus' purpose. And, and here Jesus says it directly. But Jesus said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns because this is why I was sent. And so he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And so, again, what's Luke saying? What was Jesus about? Preaching in the synagogues. He must come and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And how could we summarize that quickly? What's the good news of the kingdom of God? The king has come. The king is present. It's Jesus. And there's a way you can be saved from your sin. And Jesus says it directly. Why did Jesus come? Right there. He says it himself. I came to proclaim this message. So Luke wants us to be clear on Jesus' main purpose, proclaiming the gospel. So that's working through the story. That's the major emphasis of the story. Let's now spend a moment and look at the minor emphasis. You see it twice in here. You can't avoid it, right? There's one man crying out in the synagogue, and then there's all sorts of other people uh, happening later on that evening at the house. So when we talk about the spiritual forces of evil, when I use that phrase, what actually am I talking about? Well, here's what the Bible teaches in 1 John. We face three enemies. We face the world, we face the flesh, and we face the devil. Generally speaking, those first two, there's no argument about. We know that there is a, the world system that works against us. We know the battles of our own flesh. But John also reminds us that a third enemy is the devil. And sometimes we're embarrassed to bring this up. Sometimes we sound crazy. But this is what the Bible teaches. And we should not ignore it. Here's how Peter said it. Satan and his, or let me first, yeah, here's how Peter said it. We had an adversary who is like a roaring lion who roams around seeking to devour people. And we know Satan and his demons, the fallen angels, they do just that. They seek to oppose God and his people. They seek to blind and deceive the eyes and the minds of unbelievers. Here's how Paul said it. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. That's where I got that phrase, in the heavenly realms. Paul says our battle is not flesh and blood. It's spiritual matters. And so here's what we would say. As followers of Christ, for those who are in Christ, what characterizes our common struggle is a struggle of spiritual warfare. 
in the spiritual realm. We all face spiritual, supernatural, and spiritual opposition. You and I, if we are in Christ, have an enemy who wants nothing more than to bring about our demise and our destruction. That's clear from the Bible teaching. C.S. Lewis now helps us balance this out. If this is the reality, how then do we balance this out? You'll see this on the screen. There are two equal and opposite heirs, quoting Lewis, into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both heirs. I like that quote. It gives us some balance in this regard, realizing there's two extremes, but then how then do we find some middle ground? What's a balance point in between? Second question is this, how might demons today or spiritual forces of evil exert their influence on Christians? What does this actually mean? Where are we started? Well, here's how that happens. Through temptation, through false teaching, through creating feelings of guilt and doubt and fear. Ever felt like you've been accused and there's guilt in your soul or doubt or fear? That's what we're talking about. In some cases, it would be persecution. And in extreme cases, like we see in the story, it's a physical manifestation. And so as you think of it in these terms, here's what we would realize. These things aren't rare and they're not just dramatic. There's a whole spectrum of spiritual forces of evil that we're all involved with, some as simple and early on in this early stage of temptation and false teaching and accusations, all the way over to the other end where we would see clear and overt physical manifestations. And so then along this spectrum, how then do we begin to deal with that? Well, oftentimes, and if you're getting ordained, uh, and Stephen, a pastor of Sevilla Church, is getting ordained in a couple of months, they always ask this question in ordination councils. Can a Christian be possessed by a demon? The answer to that is no. Demons cannot, can never spatially indwell a true believer. But here's what I learned as I tried to read and research over the last months on this topic. We like that question in the West, but, but it's theoretical. It's academic. And it doesn't help us deal with the very real reality of evil forces in our world. So what do we then actually say? What might we actually say? And here's might be a better way to, to answer the question. How do we deal with those who are subject to the influence of some spiritual force of evil? And so that's what I want to talk about next. Certainly, I could talk about temptation and accusations in our mind, or I could talk about the extreme overt ones. I want to try to talk about things that are in the middle. And even in doing that, I know this is a broad category and I will leave much unsaid. So here's my title. I understand the people in the story. I understand if Jesus did this for me, I would want him to stay in my village forever. Jesus, I'll build you an addition, right? You can have the house. I'll sleep in the backyard. Jesus, because you're going to make my life so good. But Jesus does not stay. He does not stay. You think what he could have set up, right? You think he could have cleared and emptied every hospital. But here's what Jesus teaches us. His priority is not to be a miracle worker. His priority is to preach the gospel. His ministry is a ministry of the word. There's no example of Jesus heading out to do a healing tour. There's no example of him heading out to do a, uh, an exorcism tour. 
he headed out to proclaim the gospel through his teaching and he corroborated it through these kinds of signs and miracles. The main message we have is to announce that the king has come. And you see, if Jesus had just focused on the temporary, sure, he could have defeated evil in the short term, but Jesus was coming to do something so much greater. And that's why this is the first miracle Luke records. He's, what he's saying is Jesus, yes, is going to do it temporarily for this man, but his greater purpose is that he will overcome evil permanently. But yet, here's what we know. In order for that great victory, in order for the king to come, here's what we know. In order for Jesus to defeat evil, I don't quite want to say it this way, he had to be defeated by evil. And that's not totally accurate. But you think to Good Friday and think to Saturday, Jesus on the cross. He had to die on the cross. You think of Saturday. It feels like it's a defeat. It feels like it is a defeat. In order for Jesus to defeat evil, he had to first go through the cross and Good Friday. He first had to go to the grave. In order for this man to be set free, Jesus first had to be arrested and bound. In order for Jesus to say to this man, be quiet, Jesus first had to endure all the false accusations from everything, and he never said a word. In order for this man to be thrown down, but yet not be harmed, Jesus was thrown down and nailed to a cross and harmed greatly. And in order for Jesus to spend personal care and love for each person, he would be forsaken by his father and feel the distance from his God. My God, my God, why are you forsaken me? In order for Jesus to do all of these things, he had to first do that work on the cross. And that ultimately is our hope and is our message in these things. Let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, we want to be aware of these things, of your schemes. And so God, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be aware of the world, the flesh, the devil, and how they counter against our souls. And God, may you give us wisdom and grace as we would deal with these matters. But God, ultimately, Lord, I pray that you would root in each of such root in each of our hearts, Lord, your victory, what you did on the cross, and what that means for us, our sure victory, and the ultimate one day, ultimate defeat of evil. And we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I want to end with a benediction, and as we've been doing that for this series, just invite you to stand. We always have four words that we say at the end of each service, but before that, let me just read these words from Scripture. They're from 1 Timothy. Here's what Paul wrote. He said this, He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Harbor, we are sent.